So today we're beginning a two-week thing, talking about our stories. And as we get rolling this with this, I want to ask you, what could you do with just six words? If you only had six words to use, what could you do with it? You know, on some places, if you go to the right taco truck, you can get something good to eat with just six good words, right? Um, a few years back, we decided to uh, invade a country on just six words. Or some time back, uh, a couple made a rather bad decision about what to do with the evening that they had planned with just six words. Okay? That one will... You'll get that one after a while. <laughs> um, the novelist Ernest Hemingway, a lot of you guys have heard of, was famous for using just six words to tell a story. Here's Hemingway. That's Hemingway, not Gary Helmers, okay? Um, and so, so Hemingway was one time, he was, he was really famous for writing really short, direct stories. And somebody asked him, can you do a story in just six words? And he says, yeah. And from Hemingway's precedent, this has continued over time. And so over time, these guys developed the practice of doing a six-word memoir. And there's some books on this. There's some websites where people have told their life story in just six words. Um, could you do that? Could you do that? Kai did that in the first service. He texted me his six-word autobiography. I came, I rocked, I stopped. <laughs> if you know Kai's story, that pretty much gets it, okay? Um, and and so there, on some of the websites, there's really interesting things. Some of them are... Just kind of go get them, you know, like that. It all changed in an instant. People that have kind of exciting lives. Um, other folks, it's, it's a thing of triumph. It was the cancer that didn't survive. Isn't that awesome? But some other folks, from the way their story's gone, it might be kind of disappointing. Or it could even be something that has more to do with mourning. Or if you asked me to do it when I was in fifth grade, it would have been something like this. Okay? My teachers and parents had a lot of conversations at that point. Um, but could you do that? Right now, if you, if you could do that. I, we're not going to take time. But as you're sitting, I mean, not everybody listens with complete concentration. So maybe do that while you're sitting there today. Think about that. If you want to, send one to me. It's bob at livingspring.com. Or send me a text if you've got my number. But here's the deal. Some of you were already trying to think that. But as soon as I said, hey, why don't you send it to me? More than a few of you probably said, oh, I don't know if I would send the same one if I knew I had to share it with somebody. Right? Because for most of us, our stories are a combination of things that we want to celebrate and things that we would rather diminish. There's things that we just shout about and things that if we're going to talk about them, we want to rather carefully frame the way we're going to talk about it. There are points that we desperately want to remember about our lives, and there are parts of our stories that we'd really rather forget. And think about that. Think about that, that the who is listening matters a lot for the kind of story that we're going to tell. 
that if it's your pastor or your spouse or a dear friend, that might be different than the kind of story that you would tell if you were talking about somebody who was interviewing you for a job or somebody that you hoped to be a spouse um, down the road. Or for some of us, the only way we could really tell our stories is if it was anonymous, if we didn't have to live with it, right? Well, we're going to look at a story today of a woman whose deepest, darkest secrets, her story in a very real way, became known. And for most of us, if everything about us became known, if our whole story became known, that probably wouldn't be good news, would it? It would at least be pretty embarrassing. But in this story, because of the encounter that this woman and the conversation that she has with Jesus... She has a story that's really a rough one. And yet somehow, because of the way Jesus is and the way he interacts with her and the way that Jesus can and will interact with us, her story becomes good news. Okay, so if you want to follow along, this is going to be a journey, and it's in John 4. It's a story of Jesus being on a journey in John 4. It's the story of Jesus encountering the Samaritan woman. And it begins like this. It says, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. That's John the Baptist. And so he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now this is a bit of throat clearing. John's just setting the stage. But there's two things going on here. One is, is there's two things that drive the story in the Gospel of John. One is, is that Jesus makes these journeys from Galilee where he grew up and where his home was in Nazareth, back and forth between there and Jerusalem. He goes at least three or four times in the Gospel of John. And part of what he's doing is he's following the pilgrimages that the people of Israel would make every year. And so as he does this, he is kind of reliving the pilgrimages and re-teaching them to the people. So Jesus in the Gospel of John is is the fulfillment of all of the festivals and pilgrimages that Israel does. The other thing that drives the story in the Gospel of John is the controversies that Jesus has with the religious officials, with the Pharisees who were largely concentrated up in Galilee and whom the people that John calls the Jews. Now, everybody in the story are Jews, so it's odd that he calls them the Jews. But in John, that's his shorthand for sort of the elite members of society, the people that were kind of in charge of things. And so what's happening is that Jesus is making a return back because there's some controversy brewing. And so he's going to address that in the subsequent chapters. But along the way, he makes this decision. It says he had to go through Samaria. Now, if you're familiar with the map, that's not a big deal. Samaria sits... Here here it is. Whoops. Um, Samaria is here. And then Galilee is up here in the kind of bluish-green This is Judea. Jerusalem's right around here. Nazareth's up in here. So going through Samaria would seem to make sense, right? You just, you know, straight line, all of that. Except for Jesus' original audience when it says he had to go through Samaria, which just seems like not a big deal to us. If you were in the original audience, you would have heard something like, da-da-da, in your head when he goes through Samaria. Because Jews didn't go through Samaria. 
and especially Jews that were teachers, that were like official people like Jesus, that were big deal people, you never, never, never went through Samaria. And Samaritans never went into Judea or Galilee either. The reason being, just to back up here a little bit, this area was once all the nation of Israel. And then about 800 years before the events where Jesus is talking, um, the area had been invaded by the Assyrians, the bad guys that we meet in the book of Jonah. And they had taken all the people in the northern part of the kingdom, basically Samaria and Galilee, and killed a lot of them, took a lot of them, and scattered them all over the Assyrian Empire. And the remaining people, they brought in other people from the Assyrian Empire, and they intermarried with the Israelites, with the Jews that had stayed there. So the Samaritans are the people who had intermarried with the people the Assyrians had brought in like 800 years before. So for the Jews, which were people that didn't intermarry with those folks, the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were sellouts. They didn't keep it pure when the other people came in like the Jews had. And so the Jews looked down and scorned the Samaritans. Well, the Samaritans reciprocated and didn't like the elitism of the Jews and would point out from time to time that the Jews had kind of intermarried with some people too. So not only were they jerks, they were also hypocrites. Neither of these groups got along. They had dueling temples, they had, they had nothing to do with one another. They would not walk through each other's land. That was how hard they worked at staying apart from each other. And yet Jesus makes the decision to walk right, right through Samaria. But that's just the start. What happens next is he comes to the town in Samaria called Sychar. And Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. And it was about noon. Um, Jacob's well is one of the first places that Jacob came to own when he moved back to Canaan. And the point here is to kind of reference that whole bigger story. Both Samaritans and Jews would see Jacob as their ancestor. So this is kind of a place that both of them would think of as their place. And obviously Jesus is tired and it's noon. Um, John tells us in another verse that all of Jesus' disciples had gone into a town to look for food and water. And Jesus sits down at a well at noon. Now, he would expect to be by himself at this point, time of the day because folks in their setting would normally go out to get water in the morning and the evening. And so what we would expect to happen next in this story is that Jesus would just sit there and then his guys would come back from town and say, oh, we got some food, we got some water. Had to deal with those dirty Samaritans, but we, we got it handled. But instead, someone else shows up. It says, the Samaritan women came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now, for us in our setting, that's not a big deal. If you're thirsty and somebody has something to get water, you, you're going to sit there, you're going to ask them for a drink. You ask them for a drink. But in this setting, this was absolutely extraordinary. For Jesus to speak to her and ask her for water is violating about 10 social and religious taboos. This is just extraordinary. This never, ever, ever would have happened, okay? First, it's a Jew talking to a Samaritan. Doesn't happen. Especially to ask a Samaritan to do something for him. Mow my lawn, maybe, but not, not, not for water. Secondly, it's a man talking to a woman. 
Third, it's a man talking to a woman who is unaccompanied, which in their culture wouldn't happen. Where am I? Fourth, fifth? Furthermore, um, (laughs) furthermore, he's asking her for water. And in all of these cultures in, in this time, sitting down and sharing water or sharing a meal with somebody was a big, big deal. You might have somebody that lived three or four doors down from you for years, and you'd be fellow Jews. You would still not have shared a meal with them because you didn't know each other well enough to have shared a meal. You wouldn't ask for water from somebody because to share a meal, to share water, was a sign of fellowship. It was a sign of equality. It was a sign of friendship. And for Jesus to ask water from this woman is just absolutely mind-blowing. It's blowing through so many different barriers. And he's talking to somebody who probably has no business being out there at this time. Well, the woman herself is stunned. She says to him, says, look, you're a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Both of those things are big barriers. How can you ask me for a drink? I mean, she is just absolutely dumbfounded by this. There's just no possible way that when she left her house that day, she thought in any way that that was possibly what was going to happen. You know, you could have asked her for a million things. Hey, when you leave the house today, what's going to happen? Have a Jewish teacher show up and ask her for a drink would have been at least a million and one. There's no possible way she thought this was going to happen. And she's so stunned that what happens next is that, well, let's see what Jesus' response is. Jesus answers and he says, look, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, if that didn't make a whole lot of sense to you, it's because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Okay? Jesus is being kind of there's a lot of $5 words you can use here, but basically he's being hard to understand right now. And he's kind of doing this on purpose. You know, in the other gospels, Jesus tells a lot of parables, kind of weird little stories. And the purpose of those parables is to kind of disorient people a little bit, to shake them from what they think they know. So he can show them something new that they didn't know yet. You know, and that's a lot of times to learn something new, you've got to lose what you think you already know. Well, Jesus is trying to do this here with this Samaritan woman by using really complicated language. And, and in the original language, it's even more like hard to get. And so what happens next is she knows that Jesus is up to something. And we're not going to go through it, but they have this really detailed theological conversation with one another. But by the end of it, she knows that Jesus is offering her something good. And so she says this. She says, finally, and this is how it finishes up several verses later, sir, can you give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water? Now, she's saying two things. One is she realizes she's just, it's almost like the sun coming up over the horizon, that Jesus is talking about some possibilities that she hadn't anticipated. That Jesus has something for her that she couldn't even imagine was the possibility. And she's just starting to get that. 
And so that's this living water. I won't be thirsty. She knows he's speaking metaphorically, but she doesn't quite know where this is going yet because, you know, how, how, do, you, how do you talk to an eight-year-old about what it's like to be 50? You, you, well, that's a start. Um, <laughs> that's a start. But she knows Jesus is talking about something that she just can barely get. And she also knows that her own situation is difficult. The reason she is coming out at noontime to get water is part of her story. That she is ostracized in her village. She's somebody who, and we'll learn more about that in just a second, but that her story is not a happy one. And that she's out there drawing water in the middle of the day because she can't go out when everybody else is because they won't have anything to do with her. And so she won't, to just be relieved from that awful story where everywhere she goes, she's sneered at and dismissed and even hated. Yeah, whatever you're selling Jesus that'll get me out of that, she's up for that. So she's just starting to get that Jesus has something more for her. And she's ready to take it. But as it turns out, Jesus knows even more of her story, even without her telling. And he says this. He says, go call your husband and come back. And she answers, I have no husband, she replied. You notice what that is? It's just six words. That's her story. I have no husband, she replied. The reason she has no husband is Jesus explains to her because he's showing her, I know your story. I know who you are is you've actually had five husbands. And the reason she would have had five husbands is it's likely that she was divorced by each of those guys. And in their cultural setting, it was the man that always made the decision about being divorced. And so, and they would use words like she was put out or cast off. And that was her experience five times. And each time that happened, she would lose status, she would go down in people's eyes, and probably worst of all, she went down in her own eyes. Until finally, the guy she's living with now is not her husband because no one will marry her. And she's found some guy that, in exchange for whatever, is willing to have her live in his house, but not even as his wife. And that's where she is. That's a sad story, and it's a hard story where she is. And yet, by the end of this story, there's good news. She and Jesus end up having another theological discussion because she's just knocked back on her heels and she knows he's a teacher and if you can talk about abstract things, you can stay away from hard things. I know this very well um, in my own life. And they do that for a while, but then finally she commits to what Jesus has and tells him. And so she finally goes back to her people. After she hears Jesus offer, she hears what Jesus has for her. And somehow in hearing Jesus, and I really think it was a lot of just because Jesus listened to her story, the fact that Jesus knew her story the thing that she would have loved to have kept secret but was probably shouted at her every time she went out in public. 
Jesus knew that story and He was still willing to be her Savior. He was still willing to be her Lord. He was still willing to be with her and for her. And so she goes back to her people. In fact, she is so stoked at this point that she leaves the jar, the very thing that she had come to do at the, at the well. She leaves it, and it's just, she goes back to her people, and she says, come see this man. And look at what she says. This guy who told me everything I ever did. When she got out of the bed that morning to find out that a stranger would know everything that she'd ever did, she'd ever done, that would have been a disaster. That would have been shameful. And yet, Jesus told her everything she had ever done. And that was the best news that she'd ever had. She had told Jesus the whole story. It was her whole story. And her encounter with Jesus had taken her whole story and had made it good news. Friends, it can be the same way for us. And God desperately wants that to be the case. The Lord wants to share our whole story with us. And He wants us to be able to share our entire story with Him. Not modified, not limited. He knows it anyway, right? God knows it anyway. And yet there's something tremendously empowering about being okay with that and about being okay with our story. So what is it? What is it about this woman that made her story change so much? What was it about her, and how can it happen for us? Well, I think it was Jesus' first question that changed the situation where knowing her whole story, instead of being a source of shame, became the door through which she walked into a new life. It was when Jesus asked her, will you give me a drink? Will you give me a drink? Because what Jesus is saying with that question is... I care for you. I value you. You are important. You are good. You can be great. I want you to be mine. Not as a husband. Not as a husband. But I want to be your Lord. I want to be your Savior. See, she thought that there were all kinds of barriers. The way her story functioned, her status as a woman, her status as a Samaritan, um, the the shame and and the reproach that she felt because of all of her marriages and divorces, She thought all of those things were a limit, that that part of her story was really kind of a cage that she was stuck in. But by stepping forward and saying, will you give me a drink, Jesus opened the door to that cage. He opened the door to the part of her story that instead of being something that could empower her and lead her forward, had just been a set of limits and a set of barriers. I hope that at least some of you have had such a great experience with God that your whole story is nothing but good things. And even the bad things are so covered with God's grace and mercy that you have no problem telling that story and you'd have no problem owning that story. But by my experience, I know that for many of us, that's not the case. That if we were to tell our whole story, it doesn't work that way. We have lots of parts of our stories that hold us back that instead of being something to propel us forward, really are. They're barriers. They're walls. They're cages. So I don't know what the question would be for Jesus to ask any of us. You know, it it, it might be just, 
Something as simple as, will you listen to me? Or will you stop running? Will you just take a break? Will you let me love you? Will you please, please listen to my voice? I don't don't know what it is. But the fact is, is that Jesus is asking each of us some kind of question. That if we will just answer it, if we will just say yes, we'll break down those barriers. We'll break down those walls that are constraining us and have us stuck in a story that does not end well. A story that doesn't empower us, but that holds us back. So what is it for you? And what does it take for you to say yes? Jesus wants to ask that question. So whatever the weight is, whatever the limit is, whatever the cage that you're stuck in, let that go. Let that go and let Jesus lead you into the next thing. The second thing that happens, again, with just six words, he says this. He says, look, everyone who drinks this water, he's talking about the water at the well. This is one of the parts we skipped. He says, look, if you drink this water, you're just going to be thirsty again. Some of us are really good at managing our lives, right? We've worked really hard at holding it together. We're really good at presenting a good story to people. We are, we are experts at doing it. But every day, you've got to reconstruct that story. And every day, you've got to keep building it up. And you've got to keep holding on to it. And you know... You're just pushing the rock, as I wildly mix metaphors here. You're just pushing the rock up the same hill over and over again. That water, if it's your water, you're going to get thirsty again. It's just not going to work well enough. But the kind of water that Jesus wants to give us, what he earlier called the gift of God, the new life that he wants to give us, if we can hold on to that and begin to partner with him in writing a new story for our life, of going back and editing the old parts and writing some new things that are even better than we can imagine right now. If we hold on to that water, if we can begin to live that story, Jesus says you will not thirst any longer. He says, indeed, the water I give them, the water He wants to give to each of us, will become in us a spring of water welling up into eternal life. That is great and that is good news. And it was grasping that reality was why this woman, who had just been shamed and controlled by her story, could go back to the very same people who had shamed her and controlled her and say, this man told me everything about me. This guy knew my whole story. And that was great news because she got a sense of the gift of God. She got the sense of this new water that Jesus wanted to offer. She realized that from this point on, she had the chance that Jesus would join her as becoming the author of a new story. And she got just the sense that Jesus wanted to do something even better than she could imagine. You know, that's one of the saddest parts about hardship in our lives is it takes our imagination and just makes it smaller and smaller and smaller. Our sense of what's possible gets more and more constrained. That all we can think about is just getting through the next day. And the idea of dreaming about next week or next month or next year begins to go away. But what Jesus wants to offer to each of us is more than we can imagine. So what's the next step? Well, it's kind of simple. We need to get better at imagining. We need to trust that Jesus owns us and owns our story 
and desires good for us with such a great passion that we can begin to think beyond today. That we can, be on, can begin to think beyond next week. That we can begin to imagine good things for us. You know, most of us when we're 10 are pretty good about imagining. And then as you get older, you know, you, you learn to stay within your limits. You learn to punch your weight. You learn that not everything is possible. Jesus has come to reverse that process. Failures are no longer a barrier. Losses are no longer permanent. Even death, as we'll find out by the end of the story, is no longer the end when it comes to Jesus. And so what he's really asking us to do is be better at imagining the future that God has for us, the future that can be in your life. Now, if you're thinking imagination doesn't show up in the Bible, it's because this is what the Bible term Bible uses when it talks about imagination. It's faith. It's believing that God's version for the future is going to be awesome. And going ahead and living that. So Jesus knew this woman's story and he knows ours. And he's willing to enter into it. And Jesus had something better. It was what he called again the gift of God. And she began to get just a sense that that was possible. And began to imagine and get better at imagining what could happen because God was now at work in her life. And then finally, the other thing that she did, it says this, she left her water jar and the woman went back into town. She left. She acted. So, I mean, this is nice to think about, but at some point we got to do something about it, right? we got to go. And that's what Jesus is asking this woman to do, and she did it. And she came back and was able to say that this guy told me everything about me. And that was great news. That was great news. Friends, God already knows everything about you. I don't. I imagine no one else here does. Even your spouse probably doesn't know everything about you. And it would be a little scary to know that. But the Lord does. And he wants to start there. The place where it's the worst place to end up is the best place to start with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has something amazing in store for you. He has something in mind for you that is better than you can possibly imagine. So my encouragement to you right now, as our worship team comes back forward, is to grab onto that. To trust him enough, to believe enough, to have faith if that work helps you. To begin to imagine again of what your story can be like when it's not just you writing it. When a loving and powerful and compassionate Lord is right alongside of you to create new stories, to create new narratives, to create new outcomes. That's the life he wants to have for us. Thank you.